Uh, if we've not met yet, my name is JP, and, and I'm so uh, blessed and humbled and honored uh, to be a part of this church and uh, to have an opportunity to, to share this time with you as we dive into God's Word. Now, what I want to do is I want to do a quick reset uh, for everybody who either may not have been here last week, uh, maybe this is your first time uh, in a while, or, or maybe you just happened to miss last week and you don't know quite where we are in our series. We're starting an, a new series, this is actually the second week, of a series called It Starts Here. And the idea behind that series is, is that if you're in this room, you know, maybe you came and maybe you just got invited by someone because you wanted to celebrate a graduate or you got invited and maybe you don't even really know um, what you're doing here or what's going on, uh, but, but we recognize that you're all here for a reason this morning, that each and every one of you was formed by God and created by God and loved by God. And we look at this idea of most of us in this room, we're in this room, whether we don't know God at all or Jesus or anything about that, but we are, you know, interested and at least we're showing up this morning or maybe some of us we've not known God for a long time and we're still trying to grow some of us maybe we've known the Lord for a while but we've kind of taken a break and and now we're uh, wanting to start back up or others of us have been coming faithfully to, to church for years and years but wherever we are if we are here this morning it's likely that we are wanting to find the answer to the question of how do I get into a deeper relationship with God that we want to know whatever stage we are currently in in our relationship with him, we, we often or likely want to go deeper. And so the answer to that question is that it starts here. It starts with this idea of understanding what worship truly is. It starts with our worship of God. And last week, we spent uh, the series openers talking about the who, of who it is that we worship. And, and our point last week was that everyone worships something, but who you worship is everything. We all ascribe worth. We all give value. We all worship something, but who is everything. And so we, we kind of went back this idea of this worshiping the one true God versus the different idols that maybe we face um, and we struggle with and maybe we, we worship. And that was last week. And so this week, as we continue this six-week series of asking questions like who, what, where, when, why, and how, last week was the who. This week is what and what worship is, maybe what worship isn't, um, but also uh, diving into this idea that the call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices, it's to lay down our lives. And so we're going to dive into that this morning. And, and as you can tell, I got a comfy chair today. I'm going to do a sermon a little bit differently. This is a little bit going to be more of a teaching, a little bit more of diving into looking at um, a, some scripture from beginning to end and diving in and kind of teaching some points so I won't be walking around as much. My Fitbit won't count as many steps for me, which is unfortunate. I'll have to make that up later. Uh, but we are, uh, we're going to dive in to God's word together. So if you'll join me in a word of prayer, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here and that you alone are worthy of our worship, Lord. And so as we um, continue in this series, whether we were here last week or whether this is our first time uh, as part of this series, God, may we recognize that if we want to draw closer and grow in a deeper relationship with you, that it starts here. It starts with our understanding of worship, because if we get the who wrong, then all the rest is going to be wrong. And if we want to worship you, but in a way that isn't what you're calling us to do, then maybe we, we miss the boat a little bit. So God, I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak to each and every one of us this morning as we dive into your word. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Some of you may know that uh, I grew up uh, in a Catholic home, um, and so I didn't I didn't fully understand what a relationship with God looked like uh, for a while there because I, I went through the motions, but I didn't really allow who Jesus was to, to really bury himself and, and, and dive into my life. And I remember when I started dating Stephanie, my, my wife, uh, we started dating in high school. And I remember I would go to church with her because she went to church, her family went to church, so I would go to church um, and just kind of, I would sit there and you know, kind of listen to what the pastor was talking about. I was in high school and didn't really know how it related to my life, but I remember where they started talking about worship and um, uh, this, this guy would, you know, he'd play piano and there'd be, you know, guitars and drums. And I came from a Catholic background where not all those uh, were part of the worship experience. And so it took me a little while to kind of transition to what I was used to and what worship looked like. And so I remember that I would stand up when everyone stood up, uh, mostly because I wanted to look good in front of Steph. But um, I would stand up and I would, you know, look like I knew what I was doing, but I never really sang, never really lifted my hands, I never really engaged during that time of worship. And because the idea of worship was so different to me from what it looked like when I was younger to, to what it was at that time. But I do remember the very first time I sang in a service and the first time I, I sang a worship song. And it was when I was at UC San Diego here in La Jolla. I was attending The Rock. At the time, it wasn't uh, at Point Loma yet. It was at Montezuma Hall at San Diego State. And I remember that they started singing uh, Chris Tomlin's Enough, that all of you is more than enough for all of me. And I remember that it was a moment in my life that I remember thinking, okay, I, I'm getting this now. Like this is, I, I understand why you'd want to sing to God. I understand why you'd want to raise your hands and, and I'd understand those things. And, and then shortly thereafter, during that first year of my relationship with God, there was uh, the song, Open Up the Eyes of My Heart, would, ha would come along during different Bible studies or different worship services or different you know, campus fellowships. And every time that song came on, I felt like the Lord was like really wanting to impress something upon me. And that would be my prayer, that God, open up the eyes of my heart. I'm, show me what it is that you want from me and, and help me to learn. And so for about a year or so, open the eyes of my heart, I felt like it was like me and God's song. Like that was our song together. Um, and so we talk about that, but Fast forward a few years, actually probably about a decade, and I'm a pastor now over at an LA area, and the senior pastor at the time had asked me to um, start leading a service that met um, during the first hour, and it was only hymns. Uh, There's a little bit of a choral arrangement, so there were three or four part harmonies led by this really um, gregarious, like really strong vocal uh, um, piano player, and he was leading. And I remember, I remember being in the back and just being like, oh man, like, you know, I don't really connect with these songs. Like I was, a use, I was used to having, you know, a certain way when I was in a Catholic church, but you know, that's different. And, and now I'm used to certain instruments and certain style and certain tempo and certain volume. And, and this was very different to me. And so I remember thinking, you know, I, I really don't get a chance to really worship on Sunday. Like that's, that's not my opportunity because you know, I don't really connect with the songs. And there's only once a month where we would have a prayer night on a Monday night that I was like, okay, like once a month I can, I can really worship. And that is the exact wrong way to look at worship. That if, as if the almighty creator who spoke forth existence, that at the response of his words, let there be light, that there was light, that the response of, of his words, that he was able to create 
everything. As if Jesus Christ, who knew perfect unity with the Father in heaven, and that he came down into the rags of a manger and lived a a perfect life, died a horrible death, and was raised to new life, as if the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that is indwelling within the believer, as if the holy triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit, as if that worship should be predicated upon my preferences. As if I were to come in and say, well, God, I know you're still good, but you know, enough wasn't playing and neither was open eyes in my heart, so I'm not going to worship you today. As if the goodness and power of God should be dictated by how we prefer to sing songs to him. And I confess that because that was where I was at that time. I was thinking, I don't really get to worship. What a small view of worship that is. Singing songs is part of worship, but it's not all of it. We see this in Richard Foster. He says it this way. He has a quotation that says, singing, praying, praising, all may lead to worship, but worship is more than any of them. It's part of it. It's one color of a painting. It is not the whole painting. It adds to it. It makes it richer, but it is not the be-all, end-all of it. And, and I'm willing to, to, to bet that I'm not the only one in here that has had a misinterpretation of what worship was. I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one in here that for a season would say, well, worship is like those, those few songs that I sing before I hear the message. Or worship is that part of the service where people stand up or sit down or raise our hands. You know, maybe we look at worship and we leave a service and we say, wow, man, the worship was so powerful that day. I really felt the Lord. Maybe other times I say, man, the worship, it just spoke to me. God, man, that was our song, me and God, and so I'm so close to him now. Maybe other times we say, wow, the worship was too loud. The worship was too slow. The worship wasn't what I would choose the worship songs to be. And so it's as if we say that our ability to praise the almighty creator, the son whom he sent, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us is predicated, is based on our preferences for singing. And that is not what worship is. That's part of worship. But worship, as we're going to talk about today, the call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices. That is part of it. It isn't just to lift up our voices. It's to lay down our lives. The call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices. It's to lay down our lives. And so maybe for some of us, we push back and we say, well, I'm just not someone who likes to stand up. I'm not someone who likes to sing. I'm not somebody who likes to raise my hands. I'm not somebody who likes to, to kneel or to sit. Uh, I remember a time in my life when a worship leader, and we don't do this here, but worship leaders would be like, stand up. And everybody sinned or everybody clap or everybody. I'm like, hey, worship leader, why you got to tell me what to do all the time? Like, you know, like you have this moment where you're like, why, why are you telling me all these things? Like, I want to do what I want to do. And it's like, but we recognize that we don't just base worship time in a service on this idea of what songs we like, what style fits us, what our preferences are. Because God is bigger than any style, any song, any preference, any instrument. And he is worthy of praise because of who he is, as we spoke about last week. But we push back on this, and Richard Foster talks about it this way, this idea of being emotive or or, uh, showing our emotions while we worship. And he says, we are quick to object to this line of teaching. Say, people have different temperaments, we argue. That may appeal to emotional types, but I'm naturally quiet and reserved. It isn't the kind of worship that will meet my need. 
what we must see is that the real question is not what will meet my need. The real question is what kind of worship does God call for? Because if we're coming into worship, if we're coming into a, a service and the sermon, if we're coming in only thinking about how it can meet our needs, then our view of worship, our view of God is to fulfill us rather than us to lay down our lives for him. That it becomes egocentric or, or, or person-centric rather than theocentric, God-centric. And so we look at this and we say, thankfully, Thankfully, the Bible and God's word speaks into this kind of idea of what the worship is that God calls for. Because again, the call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices, it's to lay down our lives. And so we're going to dive in and we're going to sit down and we're going we're gonna to go through some context of worship, some stories of what worship looked like throughout the, the time of the relationship with God. And we're going to start with the context of worship and, and continue on and see where that leads us to now. So as we look at the context of worship, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 19. If you have the church Bible with you, um, it's 1870, page 1870, 1870. Uh, If you have your Bible app on your phone, that's awesome. If you have your own Bible, that's awesome. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews 9, starting in 19. And as you do that, the context of worship, what we're going to come into with is what worship looked like early on when it came to worshiping God. And that was this idea of animal sacrifice, this idea that they would lay, they would sacrifice an animal on an altar for our sins and for those sorts of things. So animal sacrifice was the first idea in the context of worship. And so I'm going to read Hebrews 9, starting in 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and here's the kicker, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We see this in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve sin, they try to use a fig leaf to cover up their own nakedness out of shame. And we recognize that the fig leaf is, is an example or can symbolize this idea of how we as people try to cover our own sin out of our own devices rather than recognizing that in order for sin to be truly forgiven, there has to be the shedding of blood. There had to be an animal, and so it was only when the animal was sacrificed in Genesis 3, and they covered them, their, uh, their sin and their nakedness with the, the skin of the calf. That was the only time that their sin was actually forgiven, because without the shedding of blood, without an animal sacrifice, there could be no forgiveness for sin. And we see this uh, further on when um, people would bring their offerings, whether it would be goats, whether it be sheep, whether it would be... Um, oxen, whatever it may be, they would bring their offerings to the tabernacle. The tabernacle is what we see in Exodus while God, or while Moses and God are talking about Sinai, that he gives them all these uh, instructions on how to build the meeting place of God, the dwelling place where God would meet with his people. And so in order to even get to the dwelling place, there had to be a bronze altar at the very front, which was where the sacrifice for sin was made. And so right off the beginning, in order to approach God, there had to be the laying down of an animal sacrifice, because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sin. Now, if you want to look more into that, we'll, we'll dive into the tabernacle in another series and another time. That thing is rich with imagery and rich with theology. But 
for our purposes today, if you want to dive into a little bit more of this idea of the animal sacrifice, you can look at Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. was this time in which once a year, Yom Kippur is, is the, the name of it, the Day of Atonement, it would talk about how Aaron, as the high priest, would go and he would sprinkle blood over the different, um, over the altar, over the different instruments, and he would bring in a goat, and they would, he would lay his hands on the goat, and he would confess all the sins of the people onto this goat, and then they would send the goat outside of the community of God. If you ever heard the phrase scapegoat, that's what this is. It's the idea of a goat that had been all the sin, everything had been taken upon himself, and he's taken out as a symbolism of the fact that he is no longer part of the community, that the sin is now gone, and then a different goat would be sacrificed again because the shedding of blood is the only way there can be forgiveness. So with that being said, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I am so thankful to God that he called me into church leadership uh, now and not during just like blood sacrifices all the time, like with animals, because I'm very squeamish. Um, and so you recognize that I'm, I'm glad that's not me and that wasn't my time, but we see that this animal sacrifice was something that was this context for what worship looked like. That so- sacrifice, obedience, offering things up was the idea of worship. And yes, in the Old Testament, they sang songs. And yes, that was part of it. But a big part of it was this animal sacrifice. Now, we look at the context of worship. Now we want to do the change in worship. What changed? What happened that right now, as you can tell, we are not offering up animal sacrifices every Sunday. That's not what we do. So what happened in the change of worship? And the change of worship went from this idea of an animal sacrifice to a substitute sacrifice. This idea that an animal was was slain once and for all for our sin, or or rather something was slain once and for all for our sin. So let me read a little bit as we dive into this. Uh, We're still staying in Hebrews 9. We're going to be in 23 through 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in the same way that Aaron had to sanctify and sprinkle blood over the instruments in the earthly tabernacle, there had to be an even greater sacrifice, an even greater sprinkling of blood or shedding of blood to cover over the sin that was necessary in the heavenly tabernacle, in that heavenly dwelling place to make us clean with God. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So we look at this idea that Jesus became that substitute sacrifice for your sin and for mine, that he did it once and for all. It's not something where he had to come every 100 years and lay down his life again and again and again. It's once and for all, he entered in, he who knew no sin became sin, that in the same way that all the sins went upon that goat and he was sent out outside of the community, all of our sin came upon Jesus and he was sent out of the city of Jerusalem and died on a mountain. And that same 
freedom that we experienced from an animal sacrifice that they had once a year is the freedom and the forgiveness that we've experienced because Jesus was our substitute sacrifice. That once and for all, he laid down his life and died and was raised to new life so that we may experience eternal life. And so he was that substitute sacrifice. And we recognize that the only other time or the other time that we see a substitute sacrifice really clearly in the Bible is in the story of uh, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac in Genesis 22. That we look at how at Mount Moriah he brought him forward and they did a three-day journey. And for those three days, Isaac had to carry the wood upon which that he would be laid down and die. And we see that at the last moment as Abraham was showing God that he was truly trusting in God, that Hebrews talks about that he knew that God could bring Isaac back from the dead to fulfill the promise. That Genesis 22 talks about how Abraham says, we will come back. So he knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead, but that didn't mean he wasn't obedient and was ready to lay down his son's life. And at the last minute, the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. He says, I see now that you love me, that you would lay down your son. But there's a, there's a ram over there that can be a substitute sacrifice. And so now your son Isaac, who was once thought to be dead and was going to die, can now, be, can now live on as someone who survived a sacrifice, was willing to lay down his life. And so Isaac and Jesus are both these, these examples of someone who carried the wood for their own death it was a three-day journey, and that they, were, they laid down their lives. Isaac was saved by a substitute sacrifice in the ram. Jesus became that substitute sacrifice for you and me. And now he becomes a living sacrifice. And so we see the context to worship, sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and the fact that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sin. The change in worship is that there was a substitute sacrifice that Jesus did that lay down his life once and for all so that we don't have to keep bringing animals as a sacrifice because his sacrifice was better and pure and stronger and everlasting. And the last thing is now the call to worship. We've seen the context, we've seen the change, but what's the call to worship? It's this idea that no longer do we live by the idea of an animal sacrifice. And in light of Jesus being our substitute sacrifice, we are called to be a living sacrifice. We're called to be a living sacrifice. And we see this more in depth in Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice that Paul doesn't command worship and laying down his, our, our lives as a sacrifice. He doesn't force us. He beseeches us. He says, I urge you, I beseech you. Or you could say he calls us to respond to the living sacrifice of Jesus Christ by now laying our own lives down as a sacrifice, recognizing that the call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices, it's to lay down our lives. And so let's take the last few minutes that we have here and let's look at Romans 12, one through two and ask the question, if the call is to lay down our lives, how do we become a living sacrifice? How is that become 
Or how do we become a living sacrifice? And so we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to dive into what it says. The first one, number one, is that we keep God's mercy in view. We keep God's mercy in view. As we already mentioned, we see that how Isaac and Abraham, that God showed mercy by providing a substitute so that the ram would take the place of the son. That he shows us mercy that while we were still sinners, the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us when we were the ones that had sinned. And so if we keep God's mercy in view, then that means that we're going to have a mindset of surrender, of sacrifice, of offering up our lives, of recognizing that worship is not just the 15 minutes that we sing here on a Sunday morning. Worship is what we do every minute of every day from Monday through Saturday as well. And that Sunday could be the culmination that we could be individuals that are living such worshipful lives throughout the year or throughout the week that when we come together on a Sunday morning, that is this beautiful symphony of voices and hearts and lives laid down before the Father and responding in that type of worship. And it's this beautiful moment that people are able to recognize that there is something different about people who love God and who worship him, recognizing that the call to worship isn't just about lifting up our voices. It's about laying down our lives. And so we are able to come in ready to worship, regardless of the song that is played, the style that is there, the instruments that are being used, because it's not as if God's glory can be diminished by my preference. But God's glory is greater and worthy of us laying down our lives, offering up everything that we have. And we keep that mercy in view so that we remember that it's not our own goodness that made us right with God. And we keep that mercy in view so that it reminds us to extend that mercy and grace that we, to others that we've received from him. Now, keep God's mercy in view. Verse 1. Later in verse 1, it says to offer up our bodies. So the second way we become a living sacrifice is offering our bodies. Now, Leon Morris explains this a little bit, this idea of some of you might have present yourselves or present your bodies, but that verb is offer. And so Paul's verb offer, as Leon Morris puts it, could be used of offerings of various kinds, but it was a technical term for the offering of a sacrifice. So when he's saying offer up your bodies, it's, it's yes, you can give in a time of offering. And yes, you can offer up your, your service. You can offer up your gifts. But this time of offering, when it says to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, is very clearly saying lay down your life. It's just as we saw the context of worship when they would lay down animals for sacrifice. Just as Jesus as the substitute sacrifice in the change in worship has done so, we are to follow his example. If we are truly to be Christians, which just means little Christs, then we're going to follow the example that Jesus set by us laying down our lives and offering them up as a sacrifice with that technical term. Because Paul was a, was a Pharisee before. He knew all this history. He knew the context. He knew the change once he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And so now he's calling us to now respond as Jesus responded by offering our lives. Warren Wearsby also talks about how the verb present or offer can also mean this idea of a presentation or an offering that's once and for all. That we surrender our lives to Jesus. And that becomes our once and for all surrender. And we see that mirrors the idea in Hebrews 9 where it says that Jesus laid down his life 
Not over and over and over again every year, but a once and for all sacrifice so that we might receive the forgiveness of sin. And so we have this idea of what does it mean to, to have a, our bodies, to offering up our bodies. And John Chrysostom puts it this way. And it's not on the screens. I just want you to listen to it. How can the body become a sacrifice? Well, let the eye look on no evil, and it is a sacrifice. Let the tongue utter nothing base, and it is an offering. Let the hand work no sin, and it is a holocaust. But more, this suffices not. But besides, we must actively exert ourselves for good. So not just not doing bad things, but taking up the good things. And so the idea of the hand giving alms, the mouth blessing them that curse us, and the ear ever at leisure for listening to the Lord. That when we offer up our bodies, yes, there's a degree to which offering up our body means to to lay down those sins and to ask for forgiveness and not take that up again. That is absolutely part of it. But it also means to use those same instruments that could be used for sin or that could be used in line of sinful nature to be used for the spirit instead and to be used for building up of God's kingdom. That when I was in college ministry, we would pray with our leaders before the service that we would be the body of Christ that night, that we would have, that God would give us the eyes to see people who are in need, that he would give us the mouth to speak words of love and life and hope and speaking the truth to people in a powerful way and encourage them, that he would give us the arms to welcome and embrace and shake the hands of those who might be in need and who are um, new, that he would give us the legs and the feet to go to whomever he wants us to speak to and to speak to share and to go and meet people, even if they don't look like they want to be met, or even if they want to put off a, a facade, to go and meet them, and that we would be the body of Christ by surrendering, not just laying down the sins in our life, absolutely part of that, but also taking up what God has called us to do for his kingdom and for his glory and doing good things with the instrument of the body that we've been given. So we offer our bodies in both ways. Number three, after we keep God's mercy in view, after we offer our bodies, the second thing is renew our minds. Now, it talks about this idea of do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This idea of conformed by the pattern of this world, the world, the word world there is this idea of the present age. It doesn't mean the cosmos. It doesn't mean creation. It means the present age. It means the people and the thought process and the cultural ideas and mindsets of that age. Do not be conformed by what the world is saying around you but be transformed by the word of God. So John Murray, he shares this way, this idea of what, what does conformity to this age mean? He says, conformity to this age is to be wrapped up in the things that are temporal, to have all our thoughts, oh, sorry, to have all our thought oriented to that which is seen and temporal. It is to be a time server. If all our calculations, plans, ambitions are determined by what falls within life here, then we are children of this age. If our gifts and our talents are only used to build up our own career and not to build up the kingdom of God, that's of this age. If our finances only come towards building up our 401k and our nest egg and our portfolio and not to build the kingdom here and abroad, then we are conformed to this age. If our gifts are only being used for this season in this world, then we are conformed to the age. If we're allowing in, uh, the culture around us to shape and our ambitions and our desires and what it is that we want rather than what God has for us, then we are being conformed to the pattern of this age. Warren Wearsby, he says, if the world controls your thinking, you are a conformer. If God controls your thinking, 
You are a transformer. If the world conforms your thinking, you are a conformer. If, the, if God controls your thinking, you are a transformer. Because we can either allow the world to shape us and, and manipulate exactly what it is that we want to do because we want to keep up with the Joneses, we want to look good, we want to have this appearance that we're just like everybody else. But in so doing, we lose that which makes us stand out. We lose that which allows us to be a light in a dark place. We, use that which, we lose that which allows us to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We lose that which makes us little Christ, Christ followers. And so I'm going to show you a, a, a picture here on, on the screen. So if you picture this, these two lines here, picture the top line, God's word, and God's word never changes. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is uh, living and active. It is this idea. If you look at Psalm 119, it's just the longest passage in the Bible. And it's all about the love for God's word. Uh, right in the center there in the book of Psalms. It's something that it is, we're supposed to be ready in season and out of season. All scripture is God-breathed and ready for rebuke and teaching. God's word is so powerful and so beautiful. And God's word does not change. And so... Picture that, and then the line below that is the, the, the age of this world, the, the, the cultural mindset. And, and over time, we see that that just starts to decline. And here's the thing. If we want to be, if we act as conformers, as people who are allowing the world's thinking to dictate how we live, then our goal will be to just be one step ahead of the world. Our goal will be able to say, okay, listen, I... At least I'm better than the people who don't know Jesus. At least I'm better than others. Or at least I'm farther along than other people. Or whatever that may be. But if we look at the pattern and we look at the trajectory of the world, if we're only one step ahead of the world, then our trajectory will sink along with the world with it. That the trajectory will go further down, so we lose what discipleship really means. We lose what community really looks like. We lose service, what that really looks like. We lose the idea of reaching the lost because we don't want to offend. We lose what worship looks like because all we want to do is be one step ahead of the world. That's what it means to be a conformer. But if we look at that line of God's word, if instead of being one step ahead of the world, what if we were in step with God's word? Then we wouldn't it wouldn't matter how the world is going because we would still be lockstep with our Father. That we would be able to recognize that we live according to God's word and that we would stand out that the, the further the world goes down, the more of an example, the more of a witness, the more of a testimony people who follow God's word can truly be. And that we could be transformed. And then as we are being transformed, as Warren Wearsby talks about, we too can be transformers, those who share that transformation with those around us and can have an impact that goes far beyond what our world looks like now and the pattern of this world. But it goes into eternity and we have eternal impact with those around us, with our family, with our classmates, with our work, with our employees, with our neighbors. If we were to just stay not one step ahead of the world, but renew our minds, so instead of being one step ahead of the world, we are in step with God and his word. Lastly, we discern God's will. Number four, discerning God's will and delighting it. Delighting in it, sorry. Leon Morris continues this idea of the renewal of, God, of the mind. He says, the renewal of the mind enables the believer to discern what is good, what is pleasing to God, 
and what is perfect. And having discerned it, that same renewal of the mind sets the person to the task of performing what is seen as the will of God. What does that mean? That means that as we dedicate our lives to God, as we keep in step with the, with the word and not one step ahead of the world, as we are relying on God that he is revealing what his will is, that what it is good, what is perfect, what is pleasing, and that we, as we start to live that out, as we are dedicated to that, we start to discern where it is he wants us to go, what it is he wants us to do, who it is he wants us to reach. And then we get to feel the Father's delight because he can look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with what I've given you. Here, I have more in store for you. Come enjoy, come and enjoy the master's happiness. Everett Harrison furthers this point when he says, dedication leans to discernment and discernment to delight in God's will. So now, as we close, we recognize that this is not a, there's a lot to process. We look at the context we look of worship and animal sacrifice. We look at the change in worship with a substitute sacrifice. And then we look at the call to worship to, for us to be a living sacrifice. We talked about what it means to be a living sacrifice. But for you, sitting in these comfy chairs on a warm day, what does that mean for your life? What does that mean for my life? So for this week, I'm going to encourage you, if you took your notes, to look at those four different ways in which to become a living sacrifice. And you took notes there. And so as we look at keeping God's mercy in view, as we look at offering our bodies, as we look at renewing our minds, as we look at delighting in God's will, discerning it and delighting in it, which one of those right now, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, which one of those is the one that he's calling you to work on most? For some of you, it might be keeping God's mercy in view because if we don't keep God's mercy in view, then we will not be extenders of mercy to others. So maybe you find yourself being short-tempered with your classmates, short-tempered with your family, short-tempered with your children, short-tempered with your fellow employees, short-tempered with your neighbors, short-tempered with whoever it may be, and maybe you're being short-tempered to yourself as well. Because we're not keeping God's mercy in view. We need to work and to become more merciful because blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Maybe for some of you, it's this idea of offering up your body and you recognize that, that you've been falling into the same sin over and over and over again. And you need to confess that and you need to talk to someone about accountability and you need to work through that and find healing and freedom from those things. And while you are doing that, taking up the idea of using the body that God has given you to bring him glory. Whether that means to have the eyes to see those at school who need help, whether it's to have the mouth to speak truth to those in love in your workplace, whether that means to go and walk, take a walk with your family and see how they're really doing. I mean, whatever that may look like, maybe you need to offer up your body this week. Maybe for some of you, it's the idea of recognizing that you need to confess the ways in which you've been a conformer to this age rather than a transformer. And saying, how is my worldview how is how i live life more like is it more like one step ahead of the world or am i in step with god and his word and some changes might need to take place and maybe for some of you you just need to dedicate yourself to god's will no matter 
what season you're in, and it's so tough when you're facing difficult times. But we also see that often, not always, but often when people who are really struggling with the health situation or a broken relationship, when people have an authentic relationship with God, when they've had the renewing of their minds and the offering of their bodies, they're so leaned in and they're so, intru- so close to God in an intimate way that what they're facing is heartbreaking. But the closer that they are leaned in, they can hear amidst the heartbreak, the heartbeat of God. And they're walking in step with him. So maybe there's something that God is calling you to do. There's a thing that that he's put on your heart to follow his will, and we've been pushing back on it because we think our way can be better than God's way, but we recognize that his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, and that when we surrender to his will, whatever that may be, there will be a time of delight within it. Because his will for our lives is better than ours for ourselves. So whatever you need to do as you look at those four lists, or sorry, the the list of those four points, whatever you need to do, remember the main point that we have today. The call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices. It's to lay down our lives. The call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices. It's to lay down our lives. And so as we finish this last idea here. We started off talking about, you know, we look at the worship leaders or bands that, you know, they help us through their, their actions, their words, their deeds. And who is the one that allows us to draw closer to God? Who is that worship leader that brings us in to worship most? And, and we see that because of the fact that there is only one, there's only one who, because of what he did through his words and through his deeds and through us following his example, we can truly be men and women that worship God. And that's Jesus Christ, one and only. Because he laid down his life willingly as a living sacrifice to be the substitute sacrifice, to destroy the idea of animal sacrifice so that you and I can be like him and lay down our lives each and every day and surrender in adoration and worship. And if we do that, It won't matter whether Enough by Chris Tomlin is played or which instruments are there or how loud or soft or slow or fast or whatever it is the worship music is because worship music is part of worship. The call to worship isn't just to lift our voices. That's part of it. But as we live our lives and lay down our lives throughout the week, it's a culmination, again, a beautiful symphony where all of us can come together, lifting up our voices and our hearts and our lives to God in worship because of what he's done and who he is. And it wouldn't be dictated by my preferences or your preferences because it's not the kind of worship that meets our need that's important. It's the kind of worship that God calls for. And the call to worship isn't just to, lay, to lift up our voices, it's to lay down our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word that is living and active. Thank you for the opportunity God, to recognize that worship is so much more than the time that we have here on a Sunday morning. It's so much more than singing songs. It's so much more than what we've painted it out to be. And so, Lord, we pray for for forgiveness for times in which we have made our preferences predicate or dictate the kind of worship we give you. For you are worthy of all worship, all glory, all praise. And may we not get in the way, but may we join in the symphony of men and women who are living our lives for you every day of the week, who are worshiping you every day of the week by laying down our lives, and that when we have the opportunity to come and sing together, 
that it would be a culmination of what you're already doing in our lives Monday through Saturday, and it would be a beautiful, joyful noise unto your ears and a fragrant aroma unto you. So, Lord, we love you. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, every single week we have the opportunity to continue this time of worship by taking communion. And so as you take communion, you're going to have uh, the bread and the cup passed out to you. As you take the bread, it reminds us of the body that Jesus laid down as a living sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And then we take the cup that represents his blood that was shed, that was poured out upon that altar to make us new. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. And so if you have a relationship with God, regardless if you're visiting with us or you call this your home, wherever church you're at, if you have a relationship with God and you love him, take the bread, take the cup and commune with him. And if you're someone who's still on your journey, you don't know yet, don't feel pressure to do so. But for all of us who are sons and daughters of God, this is our opportunity to commune with him. So please do so and partake as you feel led. Can we give our faithful God a shout of praise this morning? So I know that uh, that's a lot to process, a lot to talk through. Uh, if you need prayer, uh, please come find me after service or uh, we would love to be able to pray with you and, and come alongside you in this journey. Uh, I do just want to encourage you that as you leave this morning, that you all in your lives, as we take hold of the truth that um, the call to worship isn't just to lift up our voices, it's to lay down our lives. And each and every one of you have the opportunity to be worship leaders in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and where God has placed you. You can be ones who lead out in that, and in so doing, bring other people alongside in that journey. And so just want to encourage you with that. And I do want to make one quick uh, announcement and reminder that this uh, after service, um, we're going to have the opportunity to put together those homeless survival bags that we've been putting things out for the past few weeks here. So if you are available and able to stay after, uh, you can connect with Ann O'Rourke or Ann Hansen, and they'll be able to help you out with those next steps. But uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of that if you can, um, as we continue to be people who are um, blessing people in our communities and hoping that more and more people who are far from God will be drawn near to God so that they can experience the hope of God. So thank you so much for being here. God bless you. Stay if you can. Regardless, know that you are loved, cared for, and prayed for every single week. God bless you. See you next Sunday.